Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. We'll be reading Judges from Judges chapter 6. We'll read verse 1. Then we'll read verses 7 through 16. Then we will read verses 25 through 35. Then we go to chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, and verses 19 to 25. Okay. I will read, and when I finish, please respond by saying, Thanks be unto God. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years... He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in opera that belonged to George the Abysrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. That same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bowl as a burnt offering. So Gideon took two of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bowl sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, each other who did this when they carefully investigated they were told Gideon son of Josh did it the people of the town demanded of Josh bring out your son he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it but Josh replied to the hostile crowd around him are you going to plead Baal's cause 
are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jerubal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abyssalites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and into the Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. Early in the morning, Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Arod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel will boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, it shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, it shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had chained the guard. They blew the trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their sword. The army fled to Bethsheba towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Meolenir, Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. I almost feel like saying, shall we clap for her? That was, that was a lo it's probably it's the longest that we've ever had, so um, I'm sure she'll get a drink, a well-deserved one. All right, good morning, everyone. And a particular welcome again to those who are um, with us for the first time. As Femi has said, a couple of things about City Church. And we would love to see you after, have some tea, coffee, and maybe just chat up with you. 
Now, we've been going through the book of Judges, and even though it's a mini-series on the book of Judges, we're trying to see this issue of um, revival, renewal. We're just that passion is about trying to see the city of Lagos renewed. Now, that, I think, um, it requires certain things. And I think by looking at the book of Judges, we kind of see how it shouldn't be done collectively, but we can see the lives of the judges and then get some certain things about how this can be achieved. Now, let me start with this. I don't know if any of you have caught up with the hashtag Hallelujah Challenge, but it's one of the most uh, hot, hottest trending things on social media currently going on. It was, kind of, it was set up by a Nigerian gospel musician called Nathaniel Bassi, and the idea is for it's, it's really there's an angst that is there that things have to change in this country. And so they're meeting in his house. He, uh, they meet, people meet together to worship God with singing and prayer between 12, uh, between 12 midnight and 1 a.m. every day for 30 days, I think it's for the whole of this uh, June. And uh, not just him, sometimes other gospel musicians, known ones, will be leading it. Now, obviously, if it's this big social, in, in social media and it's trending, it wouldn't be without controversy. And it's attracted a lot of um, reactions from people. Now, not everyone is friendly towards it. Take, for instance, a lady called Joy Isi Bewaji. Now, she's possibly a Christian, but her, she put a frustrated rant on, um, on, 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 um, on the internet. And she was basically arguing against this. Look, we've been praying for so long. The problem with us Christians is that we are mindless. We pray, sing, do all these things, but we never actually put our minds. If we have to see a true revival of whatever or change, we have to start thinking better. Now, obviously, the reaction to her, because Christians are not always very nice in our country, the reaction to her was even more vitriolic. Um, but this led to someone, a guy called Chris Okafor, writing in Why Niger, he leapt to her defense. Um, he said something like this. This is what he said. He said, since we imported our now dominant religion, he's talking about Christianity, our brothers and sisters who have been asking, um, using other challenges such as crusades, fellowships, and revivals, haven't really had their answers, uh, had theirs answered, except God is a God of partiality, because less religious countries with their citizens hardly, take, hardly partake in any religious challenge and they have had it consistently better. He said, is it not wise, then, to do less religious challenges? Or are we doing the challenge wrong? Or maybe the Hallelujah Challenge will finally surprise us and change things. Now, it doesn't, very quickly, it tells you, I challenge the Hallelujah Challenge army to pray this country to greatness, to pray away our collective problems. And again, if they have to be told to do this, what then is the law of the religion professes? Now, essentially, what both of them are saying, well, we can, they are both coming against the Hallelujah Challenge, but both of them are saying something, that they're, they're questioning a, an obvious contradiction. Why is it that with so many Christians and so many revivals that have happened, um, things have remained, it's not even that things have remained static. If things have remained static, we say, okay, you guys are preserving things. But actually, Things have degraded in this country. And they're saying we can see it through the social, um, um, social decline, uh, moral decline, economic decline. So how is it? Maybe we're doing things wrong. That's what uh, Chris Okafor says. Are we doing the challenge wrong? Now, the truth is that you cannot sing your way into a revival. 
Now, by this, I'm not, I'm not taking a knock at the Hallelujah Church because I do applaud many of the things that it's doing on many levels. But if you are seeking a revival, you have to ask the question. It really does. I think they're right on this. Are we doing things right? Now, if we're not doing things right, then where did we go wrong? Now, Chris O'Kaffer will say, stop being, you say you should be less Christian. And maybe Joy Baraji would say, there's a God, but you better be smarter. Now, I say, let's look at the book of Judges. You see, in what we're going to look at today, one of the things that Christians have always been tempted to do is to do the Lord's work in the world's way. And now we're going to look at a guy called Gideon. And we, we, they want to see God at work in a revival. But we have to be aware, as God will show us through this scripture, that we cannot do the Lord's work in the world's way. Just the fact, the fact that we ask God to show up doesn't mean he's going to show up in the means that he hasn't ordained. And so if we're going to see this renewal, social cultural renewal coming from a spiritual renewal, in today's topic, we want to see how the world uses power and how we don't use power in the same way. It's going to take a whole spiritual overhaul in our thinking. But I think that the only way we're going to see social and economic and cultural renewal is if we start from spiritual renewal. So we're going to learn how to be the weak people that God chooses to use today, all right? We'll look at that in three, in three uh, headings. The, the title of the message is The Weak Savior. And so we want to look at that in three headings. The first is the weakness of idols. The second is the weakness of strength. And the third is the weakness of grace. The weakness of idols, the weakness of strength, and then the weakness of grace. So let's start with the first point, the weakness of idols. Now, if we go to verse 1 of chapter 6 that we read, verse 1 of chapter 6, look at it. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, if you've been following this series with us, you're going to say, oh, my word. I, I, well, CDs are being phased out. Most of us don't buy our music on CDs. But a couple of us still have CDs, right? And some of us are old enough to, to know when you really use CDs. I'm sure there are some of us here that are old enough to know when we use tapes, but we're not even going down that road. But with CDs, when the CD scratches, what happens? Do you remember what happens? Huh? It skips. Sometimes before it skips, it does something else. It repeats, it repeats. It's like a DJ that is actually turning the table. It repeats. And Israel are like that scratch CD. Again, is what we want to say. Because we, we saw that before in the time of Othniel. After that, that required, um, who was the next guy? Ehud. And after that, Shamgan. Now, last week, we looked at Deborah and Barak. And they're back at it again. And that brings us to this cycle that we keep seeing. There's a cycle, this dreaded repetition that we see in the book of, um, of, um, of Judges. So if we look at number seven, or number six, they've had peace for 40 years. It says um, in, in um, chapter 5, verse 31, this is the end of uh, Barak and Deborah's time. They've had peace. The judge dies. It's implied here because we don't see Barak and Deborah again. And then the people rebel, number one. And then God is angry. And then number three, he then puts them in oppression. In fact, in verse 2 to 6, it describes the oppression. It is terrible. In fact, they're so impoverished, sometimes they were even hiding in caves. It was really, really bad. Now, but what's this evil? What's this evil that is going on? 
Because it says they did evil. Now, if you follow, or maybe think about the, the, the summary of the book of Judges, is in chapter 2. All right, you can get rid of the slide. Now, everyone is looking at it. Thank you. And I think of the summary of the book of, of, um, of um, Judges in chapter 2, verses 6 and, and following. The evil that we see is that they went into idolatry. They went into idolatry. Now, what is, what is idolatry? It's very for us now with contemporary sensibilities. Idolatry is basically when you take good things, good, legitimate things, if you take good things and make them God things. You take good things and make them God things. Now, if you think about it, Gideon is a bit confused in verse 13. He's like, well, we know that this God is a great God, right? We heard that he's done fantastic things. But if he's really there, and Chris Okafor will say the same thing, why is it that we are suffering this way? Why are things this bad if he's really mighty as he says he is? Now, let's forgive Gideon. Isaiah 59, verse 1 to 2, was not yet written during this time. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So we can forgive him. Isaiah had not come. He came, uh, you know, a couple of centuries later. But before you let him off the hook, God did send a prophet to him as we see in verses 7 to 10. And the prophet basically says the same thing that Isaiah is going to say later. The God who redeemed you and did all these things is the God you rebelled against. So, um, excuse me, he says, don't do these things. If you do these things, it will happen to you. You do those things, and then when those things happen to you, you're wondering, where, where is God? I mean, is, is, is God proving himself? Well, he's actually proving himself because he says, if you do these things, this is what's going to happen to you. But that's not the real problem there. You know, it sound, that sounds very, very logical. There's something at the heart of Gideon, and I would say that it's at the heart of many of us, is that idolatry is just not, we don't seem to take it seriously enough. That's the point. It's not that Gideon didn't know that there were idols. And the idols were, you know, not God's best cup of tea. But is it that bad? I mean, Gideon is saying, yeah, we're not perfect, but this kind of oppression? There's a, a British tennis player, currently the British number three. His name is Dan Evans, and he currently is facing a lengthy ban because he tested for positive for cocaine. Now, when responding to, you know, the news had come out, when responding to give a response to this, they asked him, you know what he said? He said, I made a mistake. Reminds me of the Britney Spears song, Oops, I Did It Again. Like, oops, I made a mistake. I took cocaine. You see, we often see sin in either consequential, in, in consequential terms. By consequential, I mean this. There is a law. If you break the law, there are consequences for the law. So Dan Evans is he's broken. You can't take certain banned substances. There is a law there, and he's broken the law. Now, when sin is looked in that way, it's bad but, for instance, if he gets eight years punishment, most people will say, ah, ah, you know, after one year, like, ah, ah. At the end of the day, he broke a law. A law is not a thing. This guy is a person. You know, he has children. What about his feelings? All of those things. We see, we, we empathize more with him because he's a person than with a law which is abstract. Now, later, though, 
He then says something even further. Not just that he made his, a mistake. He says, I let a lot of people down. Now, all of a sudden, then it starts getting, that bites more. Because then you think about the people, he's, he's, he's the first, it's not the first time he's been banned. He even lost his public funding. Now, people have trusted him again. He's let them down. He had a coach. He put in the coach. His livelihood is based on his own performances. He's let the coach down. He's let his wife down. He's let his family down. Because that's the second way we can view sin. And then it bites more. Because then, sin is not just transgressing the law, but you see the personal nature. It's not enough to say, I committed adultery. But when you say, he committed adultery against her, and then you see the person with tears. You see the person expressing their broken heart. All of a sudden, sin makes much more sense. You see, when we think about disobeying God and sinning against God, and we think God says, you shall not murder, and he murdered. The problem is that you're only interacting with the law. The Bible always sees idolatry as the most despicable and monstrous thing that we can do against God because idolatry, unlike just transgressing the law, is personal. Notice what God says in verse 10. He says, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to what? Me. It's personal against God. Now, at this point, it's not just personal on the horizontal level. It's personal on the vertical level. Sin, when you ask, why are we going through this and all of that, it's because um, um, idolatry, okay, fine, but at the end of the day, isn't God a nice guy? Shouldn't he just overlook it? You're not seeing the way we break God's heart. We're not seeing that, look, if someone commits adultery on his wife, that's bad. It's horrible, right? And it could lead to a divorce, rightly so. That's right, if the wife has invested so much. Now, if the wife was also someone who used to cheat, you can't say, well, hey, she should have seen it coming, right? It doesn't feel that bad. Why? An unfaithful wife, you'd say, okay, you know, she got what she deserved. If it's a wife that is impeccably faithful, right, you say, that was really bad. But what if she was very faithful, but she used to abuse her husband with her words? You say, well, you know, hey, what do you expect? The guy was getting love from somewhere else. You weren't giving him love, right? But if it's a wife that is very faithful, a wife that cooks, that does everything, she's, you know, Proverbs 31 woman, uh, you know, you all love Proverbs 31. If it's that kind of wife, and the guy cheats on her, all of a sudden, you, you are angry towards him. Why? Because of her impeccable nature. Earlier in chapter 2, sin is described as spiritual, uh, idolatry as spiritual prostitution. God is even much more impeccable than that faithful Proverbs 31 wife. And so when you turn away from that God who is giving you all of these things, who has been so gracious, who has never once been, cannot once be faulted, and you turn to serve something else, it's hard to then question like Gideon why they're going through what they're going through. You see, it's in that that idols weaken us. Now, as we see later in verse 31, idols and the whole Bible actually, idols, when you refer to them as gods, as actual gods, the Bible Jews or, or, or Christians don't believe that they have any power. They just don't exist. But in another sense, because the demonic forces working through that, idols do weaken the worshippers. 
Israel, as you see now, are so oppressed, and so many of us too may actually say, I am so oppressed. Take, for instance, the idol of human approval that never, ever leaves you satisfied. Just when you think, ah, finally, because I've attained this degree, they're going to respect me. Or you think when you get to that fantastic body weight and body shape, finally they will look at me. Or you get that job title, that job promotion. Or you finally land that contract. Finally, these people will approve of me. And then you're always reminded that there's someone that is always better off than you. Just as you think you're getting the approval, you're also getting the rejection. Or when you actually get that thing, you find out that it doesn't even satisfy you. Idols always put us under oppression. Self-inflicted oppression, which is then a mirror and a window into God's own oppression. God, in verse 25 to 26, is saying, you cannot have an altar to Baal and have an altar to God. They don't work. They fundamentally operate differently. The two gods cannot coexist one to another. Now let's consider one of the ways they operate differently, which is through how we assess human strength. So we go to the second point, the weakness of strength. Now we think, Midian is so much more powerful than, um, than Israel. And Israel now have been impoverished, so that means they cannot gather, you know, they don't have money to gather ammunition. They are also demoralized, so you can't just whip up, um, you can't just say, what's that thing we used to say in uh, um, motivation, uh, no, uh, morale. In, and how many of us have served here? Uh, you say morale and you say hi. Well, normally when you're very, very hungry, morale is very, very... So Israel, if you said morale to them, they're like, low. It's so low. They can't fight against these guys. So how are they going to come out of the bondage? Well, God's answer is verse 14. The Lord said unto him, go in the strength and you will go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. God's answer is Gideon. Gideon. Gideon care. Now, if at this point you're reading the story and say, God, Gideon, you know, if Gideon were here, I say, Gideon, you're a nice guy, you're a very good guy, but I don't really believe in you. I don't think I can follow you into battle. You know what Gideon would say? He say, I don't believe in myself either. Gideon would not be offended. Look, most times when we go for a job interview or we're prior to going for a job interview or our LinkedIn page, what do you do? You put in all your best, the best things about you, right? Let's say you've never, you know, you're not really happy about your degree or maybe you're not happy about what you, uh, the last job you put in there. That's when you start mocking up all those extracurricular things that you did. In your CV, you always put the best thing so that people can consider you for the job. You, you put your CV there to show how wonderful you are. Listen to Gideon's own CV when he's talking to God in verse 15. First of all, I come from a tribe that is even half depleted, Manasseh, right? Part of them, Manasseh didn't settle fully in the promised land. Half of them settled beyond the Jordan. So I come from one of the, a half depleted tribe. Now that tribe should have been the firstborn, inherited the firstborn because Joseph was now like the firstborn. But if he then put that through Joseph, Manasseh is the firstborn of Joseph. But no, actually, Jacob gave the blessing to Ephraim and not to Manasseh. So that's the, he comes from a rejected half-tribe. That's the first thing. But what's worse, in that half-tribe, he comes from the weakest clan in that half-tribe. Uh, that's really bad. And what's worse is that his family in that weakest tribe of the half-rejected 
uh, clan, he is the least member. That is the he's the uh, last born of the family. Gideon. He's too weak. And he actually echoes the thoughts of his own people. Because later in chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, when it's time to gather an army, all 32,000 people come. Or is it 22,000? 32,000 people gather. All right, now morale is a bit high. And Gideon has been able to blow trumpets. And all 32,000 people come. And they think that's how we're going to fight. Because they say they're strengthening numbers. And God proves to them that nope, 10,000, nope. And he whittles it down to 300. And we look, 300 against this kind of army. And don't be, don't, let's be honest. Even us here would say this. As they said, this is too weak. And they're not just echoing their thoughts, they're also echoing the thoughts of Lagosian Christians. Why do I say that? When you think of currency, currency represents value, right? So but if you think of Wealth, the currency for wealth is money. When you think of education, formal education, the currency of that is degrees. When you think of power and strength, the currency of that is achievements. Now, think of the article I was talking about the last time. Um, in the same Y Niger, another guy responds to Chris Okafor. His name is Chude Jideonwo. And Jideonwo says something really important. He says, as a matter of fact, that the church is the most powerful institution in Nigeria outside of politics. He says, our, our brand, he's a Christian, our brand is strong and it is powerful. But to what end? The church is the most powerful institution outside of politics. Some would even argue probably the most, at least in this city. And yet to what end? Now he is saying something that is true. When you think about the growth of the church, especially through the Pentecostal church, late 70s, early 80s, and up until the early 90s, we witnessed nothing less than an explosion that led to also unprecedented economic, social, and cultural impact. I mean, if you want to know how Pentecostal we are, even if you don't identify as a Pentecostal, just even think and see the cultural impact. How many songs, you know, are somehow infused? First of all, almost all CDs of every, every musician, um, even the ones that are not Christian, they always say, they always hail Baba God, isn't it? And then you have that wonderful song that everything that happens in life, God wins. You know, we're also very expression in field. Why? Because the church has made an impact, a cultural impact. But as Judeon will ask, to what end? And this is where the critics are right. Because in many ways, we too have come to idolize power in the same way the world does. What do I mean by that? Now, Many people would say the church shouldn't raise an army, like a military army. We're not like Israel. We can't go about fighting now. There are some people, some pastors who have advocated for actual physical violence, but let's put them aside. But we think of human strength. If you think of the Israelites, they thought that human strength was going to save them. God didn't want to gather too many of them because he said you would say that my strength has saved me. But in many ways, he was trying to shape their view of power, how they viewed power. And sometimes we as a church, because we now have the power, we think about it in this way. Now, we're not going to gather a physical army to fight people, but we often think, that guy is my enemy, right? And I've got power that is more devastating than any kind of bomb you can, you can use. It's called the Holy Ghost fire, 
right? So the Holy Ghost fire, you, you ask for people, you know, fire, Holy Ghost fire, burn, burn my enemies, you know, fall down and die, and all of these things. What's going on now? Some of us will say, well, I do express things that crassly. But the point is that if you've got power, this is the way the world often thinks, if you've got power in numbers, if you've got power in money, if you've got power in education, use that power for your own betterment and to crush your enemies. In many ways, when we think about the distinction between Christians and non-Christians, we think of those who are in the ascendancy and therefore should actually oppress the weak. Recently, we were trying to do an event. I'm sorry that I excuse this, but we were trying to do an event and... Um, well, two events, and we were advertising and posting it on Facebook, and we were asking rhetorical, well, not rhetorical questions, we were actually expressing the thoughts of people who were trying to reach out to. So we're reaching out to people who are non-Christians, and then we're also reaching out to people who were not going to church. So we were expressing their views, and then we're say, we said at the end that we will try to address that. As we started to express these views, you should have seen the responses. Hardly any response from any Christian, uh, from any non-Christian. It was all Christians. And we're getting things like, why are you addressing them? If they don't want to go to church, then let them go. Let them go to hell. In fact, it's like calling us that maybe we're an Oboni cult, or we actually, it said that this thing is coming from the pit of hell. What's going on there? What's going on is this. The person is essentially saying, and many people are essentially saying, if you don't believe in God, we won't listen to your arguments. The Bible already says that you're a fool. You better listen to God or you will burn. In other words, better join us, better join the people who are on the ascendancy or else you will perish. Really? So what if they were on the ascendancy? Is that the way you would want to be treated? When we start to take power as a means to crush our enemies, and that's the only way we can lift ourselves up, can I suggest that we've started using the worldly way of power? Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. If we build Christian schools, quote-unquote, as a means to show that we also can build better schools than people who are non-Christians, more, quote-unquote, you know, our favorite word, excellent schools. Schools that actually, the people that who, who donate into those schools, most of them are often uh, unable to attend. If we are just trying to get into the game of, you guys think you have excellence, we too can give excellence. It's a power play. A power play that the world pushes, but that we are not meant to buy into. If a bank comes out and says, well, because this bank actually build this kind of building, so which we are going to build this kind of building. Then we are churches and said, because those guys could build those kind of buildings, let's show them that churches also can do this thing. We've gone into a mindset that pushes human strength as the main way through which we battle. Now, small wonder that we have the most Christians than we've ever had in this city, and yet, because we are not using God's means, the kind of impact we are making is certainly repeal, is repelling on, um, non-Christians, but it's also doing damage to a lot of professing Christians. We have to rethink this. Because this is not the way you go about revival. I said, well, you can't sing your way to it, but neither can you act your way into it. 
Trudeau Jr. wrote later in the article, says, well, we have the power, but now it's time for us to act. We must be, action is what is most important. I don't think so. It's small wonder most times when we get into trouble, rather than looking to the skies, we look into our phones, isn't it? Maybe you get, you get bumped up with a particular contract. The first thing is, ah, if I call Femi, maybe Femi knows this person. That Look, I'm very guilty of that myself. And somebody will say, well, if you pray, well, we've been praying long enough. Well, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of prayer. Prayer is not first and foremost a petition. Prayer is first and foremost a declaration. What do I mean by that? I don't mean that you declare prayers. What I mean is this. When you go into prayer... You are saying something. Before you utter any word, you're saying something, which is this. That there is but one God and he is not power. There is but one God and he is not a created thing. If you use power, here God says, if you use power as the means through which you are going to achieve things, you know what you're going to say? You're going to say that God isn't the real God. Power is the real God. And that only leads to one thing, boasting. Boasting itself, before you say it, is just an expression of an identity. You have a boaster on the one hand here, and you have someone who is humble, someone who prays. They're both two different people. So when God in Jeremiah is saying this, this in Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, this is what the Lord said, Let not the wise boast in their wisdom, or the strong boast in their strength, or the rich boast in their riches, but let the one who boasts, boasts about this, that they, have, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on the earth, for in these things I delight. What God is doing with Israel here by whittling down the numbers is that he's fundamentally changing them from the inside. And I suggest that we as a church need, and I'm saying a church here and a church outside, we need a fundamental change on the inside. Now let's see how we battle these idols in the final point. How we move on from, not from saying, my own strength has saved me, but actually to do battle with the Lord. The third point is the weakness of grace. Now, what we eventually find in the verses 19 to 25 is that Gideon with the 300 people did defeat the Midianites. The question is, how? How did they do that? Well, it's all in the preparation. It's all in the preparation. Now, don't forget, what did the army consist of? It consisted of a weak man leading a weak number of people. A, lead man, a weak man leading a weak number of people. But God prepared them first. And we'll look at that preparation because if we aren't prepared, then you would always be losing the battle for revival. It doesn't matter how many Christians you get that profess to be Christian. So let's think about them now. Think of the weak number of men. God whittles down this number. And by doing so, he's saying something. That if your fundamental um, trust is in power, if your fundamental trust is in power, this will lead to boasting, as we're saying. But by changing the number, it shows that your fundamental trust cannot be in power because there is no way in the world 300 people are going to defeat media. Except those 300 people don't battle alone. By trusting in the Lord... The Lord is changing them from the inside. So he whittles down their power or the power of their numbers to show that they should truly trust in him. In that regard, 
our enemy is spiritual. And our methods must also be spiritual. Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 again. When he finishes, he says, on the contrary, when he says that our weapons are not the weapons of the world, so the methods must be different. On the contrary, they have divine powers to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to be obedient to Christ. When I say spiritual methods, I'm not just saying that we only gather to pray and, you know, uh, fight the heavens that are there. And there's a place for that. But if we don't have our minds changed as well, doctrinally, if we don't... See, part of the problem you have sometimes with movements that only just pray and sing and don't place an emphasis on doctrine is the fervency is there, but many times the content itself may not always be right. Now, if you have a movement that's only focused on doctrine, 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 the content may be there, but the fervency isn't correct, isn't right either. We need both. The second thing is the weak, the weak leader. Notice that Gideon, after a while, is called Jerubal, as we start seeing in verse 32b. Now, he's given that name because of the encounter that he had in verse 27 to 29 with the altar of Baal. God told him, break down these altars and eventually set up a new altar that is there. Now, notice where that altar is. The altar wasn't an altar in the city. The altar wasn't an altar um, out in some plain or somewhere. Where was the altar that God told Gideon to bring down? In his father's house. In other words, there is no use thinking of external revival outside there if the people of that revival are still dealing with personal idols. I'll say that again. If you're still dealing with personal uh, idols and you're thinking of trying to confront an enemy outside there, you are just going to win that battle, plain and simple. God had to prepare the leader, who is Gideon, a weak man, and said, the only way I'm going to get you fit for this is if you start dealing with the idols that are at home. Now, we are taught three things that I'll rush through. If you want to defeat the idols, three things that you must do. Identify, demolish, and replace. Identify, demolish, and replace. It's one thing, as husbands love to do, after you finish this, and you say, well, Femi talked talk about revival, and say, have you a revival, and also talked about idols. Now, let me point out your personal idol to you. Now, we like to do that. It's very easy to say, ah, you know, uh, Shino. Shino has the idol of um, approval. Uh, Ibukun has the idol of comfort. Uh, Shegun has the idol of wealth. Ore has the idol of power. It's always easy to see someone else's idol. But you can never deal with your idols without first identifying and accepting it. So if your idol is the idol of approval, don't take it lightly by denying it. Identify, accept, and then fight. That's what we see in verse 25. Now let me tell you something. This thing is really a big problem. I know personally of people, I know of people who are counselors in marriage and have been married for 25 years in terrible marriages. What's that saying? It's saying that those people don't want to wake up and smell the coffee. Um, excuse me, you shouldn't be counseling people in marriage because, hey, you're dealing with a problem. And many times, sometimes, we also want to teach people, tell people how they should pray, how they should read their Bible, but are you dealing with the same issues? 
you can come up and say, oh, social media is a problem. Are you dealing with the same issues? The moment you keep talking about something you're dealing with, you know what's happening? You're actually denying it. Second, when you find out, when you identify and accept the idol, the next thing is to demolish it, verse 28a. Now, by demolishing, I mean that you should cut off its power supply. So if you are dealing with the idol of lust through pornography, then cut it off first by putting a software that stops you from viewing porn. Now, that doesn't solve the whole issue, at least in your heart, but at least it stops the power from coming. If you're dealing with the idol of comfort, and so that makes you just spend money anyhow, then be more accountable in your spending. Let somebody else manage your account if you are married. Or let someone, a good friend, actually see your spending every month. If you're dealing with the idol of wealth, then maybe you should start giving more. Cut off the power supply. If you're dealing with the idol of, I don't know what is, there's no idol of social media or internet. But anyway, buy a limited amount of data. Right? Buy a limited amount of data. If you always want to be seeing what's going on in someone else's life, and you know, cut it off. And then finally, and I said that because really, the enemy, there are also some of us here in this thing, the enemy wants us to quit fighting. Wants us to just quit fighting. Why? Because you say, I was, having, I was having victory, I thought I was having victory, and this thing has come again. And this thing has come again. Can I tell you, the mere fact that it keeps coming and you are recognizing and you are mourning is actually a sign that you're getting victory. Don't allow the enemy to deceive you. Never, ever stop fighting. I almost feel like quoting Rocky here, but I will not. I won't do it. All right, and the final is to replace. We identify and accept, we demolish, and then we replace. Notice in verse 26 and verse 28, that God was saying he had to build another altar to worship the true God. If the first two I mentioned are negative, this is a positive thing that you have to do. The question is, and I've run out of time, how do you do this? How do you worship? Because it's, when I say worship the true God, I am not saying that you should just sing. Even though that is part of it. Singing is just an aspect of worship. And we've done so much damage when we actually call a damage to the church, I think, when we call worship, slow music and praise, you know, fast music. Because then we limit what worship is. To worship and build an altar to God has something to do with a radical transformation of our lives. Now, what do, what, what does this, what, what do we have to do here? God, when he comes to Gideon, uh, um, when he sends the prophet in verses 8 to 9, reveals himself as something. He says that I am the one who brought you up out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. And he's saying the only way I'm going to do this, Gideon, of course you can't do it yourself, is that I will be with you. Verse, uh, verse 16. That's the way I'm going to do it. Now notice, why is God saying, why is he saying that to these people? Saying that it's the God that brought them out of Egypt and out of uh, slavery. Why didn't he say that I am the God who created the heavens and the earth? Because that would be true. God doesn't reveal himself only as creator. And here is another problem that we have in Lagos. Too often we identify this big God, this one God, the God who actually created all things. He's so big. And many times when we are doing our rikis in Yoruba, it's really pointing to those things alone. No, he doesn't just reveal himself as creator, but he reveals himself as redeemer. You say, oh, the God that actually brought me out of that problem that I was in, brought me out of that bad relationship, brought me out of that poverty, all of those things. Yes, but not quite just that. 
the most significant event in the life of the people of Israel was the coming out of Egypt. There was no such thing, there was nothing else like that. God didn't say, I am the God who delivered you from, you know, that quarrelsome wife. Some people do need that deliverance. And many times we try to personalize God just in our own personal uh, issues. No, he says, I'm the God that delivered all of you out of Egypt. Because this was the unique salvation that God gave to his people to identify them and make them his God. And he's saying, unless you identify me as that God, you really cannot worship me. And we as Christians, also, there's something for us to think about there, isn't it? You see, after, jo- after um, Gideon had broken down those altars, they asked, the people asked, who did this? And they said, it's the son of Joash. And they told Joash, bring out your son in verse 30, because he must die. And Joash said, no, I'm not going to bring him out. Let Baal contend for himself. I wouldn't bring out my son to die. When God wanted to eternally demolish everything that had to do with idolatry, he sent his own son. And the wicked people of this world, the wicked forces, working with all the forces of darkness, said, bring out your son. He must die. And he did. He did. And that son said, now is time, the time is coming and now is when true worshippers shall worship God in spirit and in truth. And he said that on account of what he was going to do. He died. So this is why when Paul is thinking about Jeremiah 9, about not boasting, and he said, let him that boasts, boast that he knows me. Paul now transforms that same verse and says this in Galatians 6 verse 14. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And how do you rest on this? He says, the only way you can do this is to become weak. Not trusting your own strength, but knowing that there is no battle that you can ultimately face that if you don't rest on God. And the greatest battle we face, the battle against sin, the battle against death, and the battle against the devil, Christ has won. How do we get this? Except we are weak. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast. Your boast then transforms. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I don't know if you're here and that isn't totally your reality. Whether or not you feel like you are being dragged away and you're now trusting in different human idols to prove yourself. Being drawn away from Christ. Or you've probably not been brought to Christ at all. Can I say this to you? There is a boast that makes more sense than any kind of boast we humans can boast in. It is a boast in our weakness, but it's a boast in the strength of the Lord. That strength is only manifested in the death and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos